Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, we enter week five of self-distancing and self-isolation and broadcasting from home. But it's also the first time we will talk about something other than COVID-19. We talk about Hamilton's LRT and how COVID-19 may affect that. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. So I want you to I want you to meet my wife. This is my wife, Eileen. Say hi, honey. How you doing? Hi, everyone. And, and what are you doing today? Working from home today. <laughs> I thought it was a lot like yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah. All right. This is my oldest firstborn, 17-year-old, Alicia. Say hi, Alicia. Hi. Uh, what are you doing today? I'm doing my online school. L- listen, you guys. Wow, did I program all of these answers? It's it's like a holiday. It's Easter Monday. Come on, I thought you were supposed to be saying I'm playing video games. Kurt, my 12-year-old, what are you doing today? Sleeping in video games. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, there's one that didn't follow the script. And uh, Tucker, what about Oh, yeah, Tucker? Tucker, how you doing? Hang on a second. I'm just going to get this off. See, I'll let you talk to Tucker here. Tuck, come here. Say something. Say hi. Say something. Say something. Say something. No, he's, he's jumping on my lap and he's licking the microphone. I know I got to talk into this thing. You going to bark? You going to bark? He's going to eat it. He's going to chew the mic sock right off. Like he like he grabs from my briefcase every day. All right, guys. Have a fun day. and uh, Stay safe, everyone. All right. Happy Easter, guys. They laughed. All right. Uh, what can we expect? It was interesting uh, reading all kinds of stuff on this over the weekend. I know you're supposed to be vegging out and... Spending time with your family, and I got out. I did some gardening and out the backyard and stuff, and and um, uh, you know we played some great board games again. I, th- I thought they were going to bring up Cards Against Humanity. What a hollow we had playing that the other night with the family. Uh, anyway, uh, so I, I was reading something interesting that was talking about um, because now what we're hearing is how we're going to get out of this, an exit strategy, because as we we haven't ap- approached the peak yet, we're not there yet, but as as you start coming down the hill. Uh, you can't just swing open the barn doors. You gotta, you gotta get back to this. So, what's life like even three months from now, from all perspectives? We're gonna try to take a look at that uh, today. Let's bring in Dr. Todd Coleman, PhD Assistant Professor, Department of Health Sciences, Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Todd, thanks so much for the time. Hope you and your family are doing well on this Easter Monday. Yes, we are. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, Doctor, what about 90 days out from a health perspective? I mean, you can't predict any of this. It's all new to us in, in your crystal ball, as I'm sure uh, no brighter than anyone. No, I'm sure it's a lot brighter than mine. I will give you that. But, <laughs> again, we just don't know the future. What do you think we could be facing in about 90 days? Well, I'm, I'm being uh, hopefully optimistic where we're seeing potentially some alleviation of cases uh, that we're currently seeing. Uh, But again, yeah, like you said, uh, that's really hard to predict uh, based, uh, especially 90 days out, considering we're not even 90 days into this. Your thoughts on where we are today, uh, 421 new cases in Ontario, uh, 7470 is the total uh, with uh, 291 that have passed. Uh, things seem to be relatively stable. I'm not sure what that says, Todd. Yeah, no, you're right. It, it, it looks as if, especially uh, in uh, Ontario and in uh, Canada overall, that we're seeing a, a relatively stable number of new cases happening per day. Uh, whether or not that's just a reflection of how many tests we're doing uh, is another story. Uh, There's no way to know that for sure, but we are seeing roughly overall in Canada uh, between 1,000 and 1,500 cases per day for the last week or so. Uh, you mentioned testing, and that's cer- certainly been a uh, sore spot with the Premier. We heard that uh, uh, just prior to the weekend. It'll be interesting to hear what his points are on that in about 45 minutes at his press conference. Uh, some provinces are ahead of the uh, ahead of uh, uh, the pack when it comes to this. Uh, some are not. I, I guess generally testing is, is not 
there, there's just not a, a lot of testing capability at this point uh, in the country. We're noticing in China that they're starting to see an uptick again after they had kind of uh, peaked or, or, or flattened the curve, per se, or, or so, we, so we thought. And this largely from people that are coming back into China, travelers uh, specifically that have had some issues through Russia and such. How concerned are you, especially when we heard just prior to the weekend, places like Wuhan were releasing or, or were lifting, slowly lifting restrictions? Yeah, that is a little concerning because uh, we're seeing, like you said, uh, some uh, additional cases happening in China, mostly from uh, those are travel related. So people outside of China coming back. Uh, it is a little concerning that we're seeing uh, not seeing complete suppression. But if you think about it logically in the rest of the world, we're still seeing major outbreaks. The, the probability or the likelihood of, of people coming into China uh, who are infected is still relatively high at that point. So the relaxing of, of the, the conditions, while maybe uh, warranted in certain cases, uh, should be done with extreme caution uh, and really be driven by the data. Uh, many were concerned. We remember our leaders a couple of weekends ago upset with still seeing people, especially in urban areas, large urban areas, uh, out and about and, and, and not social distancing and such. There were great concerns coming into this holiday weekend uh, that people wouldn't heed the advice of, of, of leadership and, and of the medical community. What are your thoughts as we're winding up this Easter weekend of what you see and, and how we are responding after? This is four weeks now. We're heading into week five. Yeah, uh, to me, it's uh, let's not let's not get lazy with this. Uh, let's not relax anything that we've been doing so far. We're essentially right in the middle of the majority of cases happening right now. Uh, if it does seem to be going down, we're at this point in time where there in the community we have the most number of cases, which means the the probability or likelihood of uh, transmission is still really high. Uh, one last question here, doctor. And, and you know, again, we're getting various uh, messages and, and, and such on this. And, and sometimes, you know, just a little common sense prevails. But, uh, you know, over the weekend when weather is nice, I see it. I, I live in a suburban neighborhood, so, you know, it's not like it's a real dense area. But you certainly do see more people uh, out and about walking, but, but certainly not in close proximity to each other. When someone's on one side of the crosswalk, you can see them go to the other side of the road and such. A situation of a, a family in Oakville that's in an empty parking lot rollerblading, just trying to burn off some energy with the three boys. How do you how do you define um, self distancing, self isolation versus solitary confinement? How, how do we right. can we still can we still go out as long as we're more than you know more than two meters apart from each other? As long as we're not gathering in in areas? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a tricky question. Uh, it, it's hard to say. I. I I fall back on the guidelines that uh, the ministry and most other public health officials are giving us, saying, if you don't need to leave your house, there's no reason that you should be. Um, that includes walks, uh, going to parks, all of that stuff. Uh, we under, I, It's clear that a lot of people are, are feeling isolated and uh, a little stir-crazy in their homes. Uh, but going out into your yard, not venturing too far, uh, if you don't need to leave your house, uh, we really shouldn't be leaving at all. There you go. Uh, Dr. Todd Coleman has been with us, PhD Assistant Professor, Department of Health Sciences, Wilfrid Laurier University. Todd, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Stay safe. Thank you very much. Uh, over the weekend, and, you know, we were talking a little bit about this on, on Friday, um, no, it would have been a Thursday, wouldn't it? Um, that uh, as we appear 
to be just getting ready to uh, cross the peak of this or flatten the curve and come down the other side, more and more discussion is moving to uh, what the 90, next 90 days will be like if we can move forward and get out of this. Uh, we just talked about that from a, a health perspective. And again, as we go down that curve, uh, still people with this disease. So it's not like we can swing open the barn doors. We're starting to see China uh, reporting numbers after they had seen a decline, tick back up again because people who had uh, traveled to other parts of the world, including Russia, and and reinfected, I guess, parts of China. So uh, the next 90 days is going to be very, very inter- interesting. From a business perspective, let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, I hope you're doing well on this Easter Monday. Uh, yes, I'm in my house like everyone else, <laughs> uh, doing social isolation. So yes, yes, I'm doing, I'm obeying the rules. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, the Prime Minister normally speaks at 11.15 today. He's taken the much-needed time off to be with his family. Uh, but Pierre Polyev was there, the finance critic for the Conservatives, and talking about a faster way to get this money out. The, Of course, Parliament uh, meeting and, and passing uh, these emergency aid bills. Is there a way to get this money out faster, or, or are we just playing politics at this time? No, I thought that he um, was, uh, we can quibble over his uh, advocated solution, he, Mr. Polyev, but, I mean, I, I thought he was on, on point. I've been making this argument, uh, and I don't have any relationship with any political party, nor do I donate to any political party, but I've been making this argument from the very first day, I mean, literally back in March. And, uh, and my concern then was my concern now, and that's small business. Uh, I'm saying that as a former banker years ago, in the 70s, 1970s, and 80s, uh, when I lent money to small and medium-sized business, and uh, I became, I learned very uh, quickly and very deeply that small business and medium-sized business are not like big business. Big business has deep resources, deep pockets to sustain uh, an extended crisis, and typically they're not going to fail. The odd one might, but they won't. Small business are the complete opposite. They've only typically got one or two or three months if they're really, really well off. Um, They've got two or three months of resources. And so the name of the game was to keep small business from failing in a crisis like this is to get the money out as quick as possible. And so I thought, and I was critical of the government solution, because while I understand they were trying to make sure that the due diligence was being done properly, um, I knew, because I know government, (laughs) all my family's worked in the government of Canada over the last 40 years in different departments. And governments move slowly, not because they're lazy. That's a, a, a bad stereotype. It's a false stereotype. It's because there's all kinds of checks and balances and due diligence and rules and regulations and hierarchy and everybody's got to sign off all the way up to the deputy minister. And it can take a long time. Which is why I, uh, he's advocating doing it through the bank. I advocated it doing through the CRA, and uh, because every employer in Canada must remit withholding taxes on the 16th day of the month, and have for years and years and years, going back 50, 60 years, 70 years, as long as we've had withholding taxes. So we have a remittance system, although it's normally a collection system. <laughs> we all pay taxes to CRA, but the pipeline can go the other way just as easily. You've got a people at both ends. You've got addresses at both ends. You've got bank accounts at both ends. And it's very easy to push money the other way. And, uh, and I thought that, that and, and I think the government has been too slow in getting it out to small business because they just don't have the luxury of time. Uh, these, these businesses are going to be failing. And I mean going bankrupt and being liquidated so they won't come back. And so the name of the game is to get the money out there more quickly. And so I thought his, his criticism on that point was was legitimate, the, the timing, the, the tardiness of the timing. And as you said, I mean, this normally takes months to get stuff like this through the door. Um, Absolutely. And and obviously they're they're flying, and any government would be flying by the seat of their pants here. But that being said, could you not recoup any abuse or overpayment just through taxation the following year? You just tax it all back. Um, And I'm saying this as somebody who used to collect money and uh, years ago, and uh, and I was collecting it mostly from consumers because I was a consumer lender and a consumer uh, branch manager, and then I became went into mortgages, and then I went into commercial. So I'd worked in the various aspects of credit, and collections is always tough. Because most people pay their bills if they have the money. Now, I would say 99.999% of people pay their bills when they have the money. People that don't pay their bills is because they don't have the money. (laughs) So it's very difficult to get the money back. But at the same time, going through the CRA, CRA, 
Canada Revenue Agency, they know the financial statement of every employer in the country because they get their, guess what? They have to file tax returns themselves. And they have, they have to declare their gross revenues, their net revenues, yeah. their profits, their expenditures. Revenue Canada, I keep calling it Revenue Canada because I'm old, <laughs> CRA, they know more about every taxpayer in this country than any other organization in existence in Canada. They've got your tax files. They know who you are. They know where you are. They know where your bank account is. They know more about you. I would only, with one caveat, the banks know almost as much as CRA. But I would actually give the advantage to CRA and not the banks. Uh, what happens as we get down the backside of this curve, 90 days yeah. from now, uh, the government doling out all of this money in order just to keep the people afloat and the economy moving? Uh, Polyev was talking about as soon as this is over, we've got to start hammering out projects. He mentioned the Trans Mountain Pipeline yeah. and various other infrastructure projects across the country. Will we see that? Will this spawn growth? Um uh, actually, and I, I don't want to sound like a stuck record here. I mean, I've been advocating natural resource projects forever and ever my entire life, and I've been advocating these big uh, these big ticket infrastructure projects uh, because, first off, we need them, and secondly, there uh, we I, I've seen the, the I've looked at the examined the economic research, and it has the highest multiplier. This isn't my opinion. This is in uh, opinion of economists who've testified before the U.S. Congress, before the Canadian House of Commons Finance Committee, that infrastructure spending has a higher multiplier than any other form of government spending. So if you want to spend money, we do, to get the economy going again, we do. Why wouldn't you spend it on the biggest bang for buck of all? which is infrastructure. I'm not limiting that only to oil and gas pipelines. Uh, any form of infrastructure, bridges, roads, ports, airports, anything that moves people or goods uh, from one point to another, I'm di- giving you a broad, loose definition of infrastructure. And and so we will get the money. And by the way, you don't have to worry with infrastructure about people putting in their bank account. The problem when you give money to people, most of them will spend it for sure, but some people won't because they don't need it. Some people are in their bank or pay down debt. Um, and so that's why it has a lower multiplier, by the way. Whereas with infrastructure, you only pay out the money when they've gone and built the bridge or built the road or built the port. And, and so it's guaranteed that it's being spent into the economy, whether we call it a bridge or a pipeline or a road, etc. And, and so um, I, I think that the uh, government, our, the government of the day, the liberal government, Trudeau government in Ottawa, is uh, having some truly, truly existential conversations in their cabinet. Because there are some people who are very strongly in favor of what I've just been saying, uh, Seamus O'Regan from this Atlanta Labrador, very strong on infrastructure energy projects. But there are some cabinet ministers from southern Ontario who, um, forgive me, but I think they're deeply religious in their opposition to natural resource projects. It's, it's, it's very deep uh, ideology, uh, rather than what's necessary for the greater good of our country. And if we want to get the economy going, I mean, there's billions and billions of resource projects in this country on hold. And that would give an enormous shot uh, to the economy. And it has a higher multiplier, a higher bang for buck than anything else. And but then again, they've got they've got uh, cabinet ministers who are just uh, they have a uh, they're absolutely opposed. They're implacably opposed to uh, resource projects. So they're, they've got a very, very, very big decision uh, to make uh, before um, in, in the near future. So what will business look like 90 days from now? I don't think it's going to go. Uh, I'm going to use a line from Fauci because I like the Dr. Fauci on the stage. He says, and he was actually, he's an epidemiologist, but he was talking about the economy. But, it, I mean, they, they come together on this subject. He said, look, it's not a light switch. You don't just sort of flick a switch and everybody the next morning is back to work. I think we're going to see a very graduated approach. There's going to be a lot more testing in place. Um, some industries are going to be very different, and I'm thinking specifically of something I've done a lot in my life, which is flying. 
Um, you know, I used to not, not make jokes is the wrong word, but I would, you know, commiserate about all the ID I have to go through to get on a plane. You know, you show up your luggage, you produce ID, and then you go to another place, you got to show ID. I count four separate times, which I don't begrudge uh, to show ID. Well, <laughs> that's going to be easy. Uh, in the in the near future, getting onto a plane when the planes come back, they're going to be taking your temperature and probably doing nose swabs if they have instantaneous tests. And I'm sure they are. The president of the press conference said that they were about, they're developing a five minute test. Well, we may be swabbing people's noses to get on an airplane. Uh, I exaggerate not. Where you have people in close proximity, um, and I think those are the ones that are most vulnerable that are going to come back most slowly. And I'm talking restaurants. I'm talking soccer games, football games, baseball games. You're in a building or a stadium where there's a lot of people cheek by jowl, subway stations, buses. And these activities are going to come back with a lot of restrictions on them, whether it's physical restrictions, you can't sit side by side, or whether it's testing restrictions, you can't board. I don't know uh, how it's going to unfold, but anyone who thinks it's just going to go back to the old days, you just get on the subway and everybody squashes in in Toronto, and, you know, you're literally, you know, one inch from someone else's face. I, I cannot see, I just cannot see that coming back anytime soon. That does not mean that the metros and the subway systems and the planes won't be coming back, but they'll be coming back and they'll be administered in a very different way. And I think there's going to be a lot more testing uh, for starters to determine to make sure you're not getting on the plane because, uh, or the train because you're sick. How they'll p achieve that, I don't yet know. And um, restaurants, the same thing. Maybe they'll say you can't sit side by side. There must be one chair of separation or something. I don't. Something like that. So those kinds of activities are going to come back more slowly, whereas I think retail will come back more quickly not because of any kind of a bias of mine towards retail, but retail, you're in, you're out. You yeah. don't go into a retail store and sit there for an hour and a half drinking a beer when you go into the local hardware store to get a screwdriver. You're in, and remember you're out to, in and, five minutes. And to think we all complained after 9-11 having to take off our belts and our shoes. Now let's yeah. take off your shoes and get a nose swab. My goodness. Uh, it's coming. I, do, I do believe well, whether it's a nose swab, there's going to be ways yep. of testing you, me and everyone else, to make sure that before we get on the plane, we're not sick. And, and, of course, there's the people who are asymptomatic who don't have symptoms. So I, I, I would not be shocked. I will not be shocked if six months from now I'm talking to you about the, uh, the necessity for a nose swab before you get on an airplane. I just right, will uh, not be astonished. Uh, about a minute left here, Ian. I have to ask you about um, uh, many had talked about how we were too reliant on China in the past. Yes. We've talked about this many times before, yes. you know, the golden goose for decades. Yes. How will this change the world economy moving forward, as well as the discussion with 5G? What have you? Uh, many have talked about bringing jobs back to Canada. Of right. course, we've talked about that. There's a reason we buy stuff from China. It's way cheaper. So yes. where? Do, how do you see see all of that in 90 days I, I do see changes I'm not one of these people who says that you know I've seen some headlines in the paper this changes everything I don't believe that we're human beings it's going to change some things for sure I'm not trivializing it it's going to change maybe how we fly but I still believe we will continue to fly I believe it's going to change restaurants, but I do believe we're going to continue to go to restaurants and bars. So, you know, I don't buy that it's going to change everything. With China, I think they're going to be the loser. They're going to lose more from this crisis um, than anyone else because they had done be uh, they had profited more from globalization over the last 20, 25 years. They went from an extraordinarily poor third world country to the second largest economy on the planet Earth in the space of 25 years. And there are going to be supply chains that are brought home. And, and before, I don't want to get any of your, your listeners uh, uh, too uh, enthusiastic. I'm not saying that every last thing made in China is going to come home. I am not saying that. Mm -hmm. I think governments will designate those things that are, quote, essential, you know, ventilators and protective equipment, and they will make sure there's a supply chain, indigenous industry of that, of that in Canada. The idea that we have to bring home the plastic uh, Tupperware bowls at Canadian Tire and Loblaws and Walmart that we have to bring them home to Canada, I think is nonsense. Um, they're not strategic, they're not essential, and they're cheap. Uh, so some things will come home. I think the higher value added, I'll be shocked if that Apple iPhone that's now made exclusively in China, I'll be shocked if in a year or two it's still made in China. That kind of high value added, and I mean by high value added, more expensive stuff, more expensive products, 
more expensive pro- technologies. I think you'll see a lot of them come home, partly because China doesn't have the wage advantage that it had five, ten years ago. It's down to less than 20%, according to McKinsey. Whereas at one point it was just astronomically huge, the wage gap. And then also the security issue and the reliability issue. And then some of the, uh, the let's call it the cheaper stuff that, that is sourced over there, it may migrate to other low-wage countries like or lower-wage countries like Indonesia or, or, or India or Mexico. So I think that China is going to be the big loser. I'm not rec- suggesting that all of the supply chain that we source from China is going to all come back to Canada. Some will come back to Canada, and some will come back to the States. Some will be diversified into other um, developing countries where wages are still significantly cheaper, such as, as I said, Mexico and uh, countries on the Pacific Rim outside of China. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. What the life will, uh, What our life will look like 90 days out from where we are today with COVID-19. Ian, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Have yourself a great Easter Monday. Same to you. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we're talking, and we have been talking for the last hour, about what uh, life will be like on the way down this curve, uh, what life will be like in 90 days. Uh, many are hoping that as soon as we heat the, uh, hit that peak, the top part of that graph, and things start to, to, to level out and come back down, that we'll be swinging open the barn doors and the kids will be running through daisies. Uh, but again, there's still a lot of people that are infected when you're coming down the backside of that curve, so this has to be something that's gradual. Uh, obviously, in the United States, the president was hoping to release, uh, relax things just a bit by this weekend, the Easter weekend, that not happening. And uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, a top uh, infectious disease expert that the public has uh, rallied around, and, and he has sort of been the calming father figure in all of this, uh, has once again drawn the ire of the U.S. president. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time on this Easter Monday. I hope you're doing well. Where is the U.S. this Easter? Easter weekend. I know that uh, the president was hoping things could start to relax by now. What is the mood of America on this Easter Monday? Well, look, the mood is still uh, as sour as it was last week as the death toll continues to rise across the country. The number of cases continues to rise across the country. But some good news in that a couple of curves appear to be flattening, notably in New York State, where the number of hospitalizations are down, ICU is down, even the death toll is down, but at a more plateaued rate, where instead of seeing numbers in the 700s, uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo saying that their numbers uh, yesterday were only in the high 600s for a death toll, a single day death toll. So uh, obviously, uh, Fauci on with uh, various news outlets and has drawn the ire again of the president. Uh, give us an update on all of this. Uh, I don't want to get too political in all of it, but uh, what's the message that Americans are, Americans are getting here? Well, look, Dr. Fauci has been, uh, you know, a leading expert in infectious diseases, not just during this crisis right now, but for decades and decades. And what he is essentially saying is undercutting the president's message that you can't just flip on a switch, tell the country to go back to work, particularly when you have a virus that is not under control and peaks and curves that are still coming down the line uh, for several weeks, if not months. Uh, The president simply says he wants things to reopen, possibly by May 1st. It's his goal. And you have these competing messages from the president and from the infectious disease expert with the medical background. uh, And what it does is create a sense of confusion. Governor Greg Abbott from Texas says he's going to sign an executive order to open up businesses and let them start going. President Trump says it's his decision uh, and he can tell the entire country to work uh, to, to go back to work. But then governors will say, no, 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 it's our decision. You can't do that. So there's a lot of mixed messaging, a lot of confusion, and it's still unclear if the president is going to get this kind of rocket to the top economic open. Uh, and how is this uh, being uh, how is this being digested by Americans? I mean, we know what the president's like. We've talked about this many times. He's he's a divisive guy. But in a time where we need unity, how is this working for him? Well, you know, it's not even a time that we need unity. It's also a time where science and facts are playing a huge uh, part in this. And this is something that the administration has really pushed to the side for the last three years. Somebody like Dr. Fauci is bringing information and science to the forefront 
And the president is having a hard time dealing with that. And you can tell uh, by the messaging the president is putting out there, some of his followers are also starting uh, to pick up that messaging from the president. Look, he he retweeted uh, a right-wing TV network just over the weekend that the message said, hashtag fire Fauci. That yeah. goes to show that there is a, a a bit of mixed messaging on what Dr. Fauci's role is and how science is playing a role in this. And there are Americans, sure, that want to go back to work, but there's also a you know a significant majority of Americans who understand that there's a potential to die if you go back to work because measures have been loosened or or, or uh, uh, let go of. We know that the divisiveness works for Donald. It, it's 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 how he ran his campaign. It, it's how he does everything. It, it's 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 it seems to be about conflict. There's always one side yelling at the other. You know, I, I woke up this morning and I picked up my device, and there are a couple of his tweets that are already out early this morning. And it's just I remember looking at it and thinking, oh my goodness! Like the first thing he's doing is yelling at people first thing in the morning. Um, we're watching the rest of the world. We're watching leaders unite. Is this not standing out? Well, look, it's not. Is it not standing out right that it's not about him? Administration is that they refuse to accept responsibility for any potential shortcoming in the way that they dealt with this crisis going all the way back to January. There was a scathing New York Times article that was out over the weekend that shows how the Trump administration failed to get things in gear at a quick enough rate. And now they're trying to cover their tracks by you know, doing as much as they can over the last two weeks, which is putting America further and further behind. Uh, the president simply is trying to find somebody else to blame for what he may or may not have done in a timely fashion, which is why you're seeing him lash out on Twitter, which is why you're seeing him go after Dr. Fauci. There are these reports that if the president were to go ahead and fire Dr. Fauci, Fauci could end up becoming a scapegoat and take the brunt of blame from the president, as we have seen done in any kind of controversy that Mm. Trump has been caught up in in the past. So is the fire Fauci movement growing? Could we see this? Well, I mean, look, it's possible. This this is a president who, you know, oftentimes will fire somebody who goes against what he believes or what he says. We saw it happen with an inspector general who lost their job last week because he perceived their report to be political. Dr. Fauci, despite the fact that he's giving science-based evidence right now, the president also sees that as a political or a potential political move. There is a, a, you know, a, a growing base underneath Donald Trump that is asking for Dr. Fauci to be fired. It's unclear whether or not that's going to happen. It's also unclear what that would actually do to the country in the middle of a pandemic when you fire the person who has an active and, and medical knowledge of what's going on and whether or not that would force other people on the coronavirus task force like Dr. Burks to also walk away uh, if the president were to go through with that. Uh, uh, as well, we heard last week that uh, Democrat Bernie Sanders out of the race pretty much, well, giving the uh, nod to uh, to Joe Biden. Now that it is his uh, party, will we hear more from the Democrats? Will we hear more from Biden uh, on uh, on the pandemic? Well, so we already know that Joe Biden had a phone call with President Trump uh, sometime within the last couple of weeks where he was kind of giving him some step-by-step advice on if he wanted to reopen the economy, this is how he should do it. Remember, Joe Biden was a part of the Obama administration when the Ebola crisis was breaking out and played an active role in that. So he does have uh, a bit of an understanding of how to go through leadership in this kind of a situation. Uh, We also know Joe Biden has been kind of doing some shadow policy on the side, kind of uh, you know, doing his own little bit of research on what should be done right now to mitigate uh, the spread of this virus around the country. Uh, and there is an opportunity here for Joe Biden to potentially elevate himself up in this race, being the presumed nominee for the Democratic Party. Uh, this could be an opportunity for him to say, look, I'm somebody who can feel your pain. I can be empathetic with you. I understand what's going on. And that may give somebody something to think about when they head into the voting booth in November, if the crisis has subsided by then, or worst case, if it's still ongoing. If now that he is uh, the presumptive nominee, as you put it, uh, can he now stand up after the president speaks and say, well, you know what, here's my view? Or does it appear, although this is doesn't seem to be happening in the president's world, does it appear that he has to be uh, on side with the president at this time because we need a uh, they need a united country? 
Yeah, look, I don't know if he's going to come and, and do his own news conferences right after the president comes to speak, because at the end of the day, Donald Trump is still the president of the United States. He's still the commander in chief, and he is still the face of the U.S. Uh, uh, administration when it comes to the government. I think what Joe Biden can do is start, you know, having uh, more broad conversations. He's doing a lot of town halls from uh, a studio built in his house. He may start doing more and more media appearances to try and get a message across there. And that could be the way that he tries to go after or at least counter what President Trump says on his nightly uh, uh, nightly TV show. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Uh, again, Dr. Fauci and the president uh, at odds on mixed messaging. Reggie, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is something to think about as you're listening to all this stuff that we talk about every day. Uh, the show has pretty much been, wall, well, it has been wall-to-wall COVID for four solid weeks. For four solid weeks, all that we have talked about, although it would be many different angles of, whether it's the health concern, whether it's the economic concern, the political concern, uh, the social concern, and how this is affecting families and such, uh, the mental health aspect. But every single thing we have talked about has been about COVID-19. So uh, this is the first segment that we have done in four weeks that isn't on that. So Larry Diani is with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, and we're going to talk LRT. Larry, how are you? I am well, Scott, and it's really interesting listening to your story within your family. And although we no longer have children at home, um, we are going through the same sort of dislocation of uh, really staying inside as much as possible. It was pretty cool because, uh, again, normally for Easter dinner, for uh, our family's tradition, everybody comes here. And we do a big uh, a big dinner here. Obviously can't do that, couldn't do that this year. So we all hooked up with a video chat and a video link, and it was hilarious. We must have sat there for what well, was over an hour. We were chatting with each other via video. So it was pretty cool to do that, too. You know, we're, we're doing that nightly. We did that yesterday as well with, uh, with my three kids and their families, uh, two of them in the Hamilton area, one in Toronto. Uh, and uh, we used uh, FaceTime uh, to connect. Yep. And we do it almost every night. In fact, my son said the other day, you know, we're talking more now than we ever did before because when we have supper, we all connect and just chit-chat as we're eating our meals. Anyway, it's part of the new reality. Uh, another thing I want to hear, we are, you know, you, by the way, Larry, you are the first guest that has been on in over a month. Well, in a month that we haven't, well, that isn't specifically to talk about COVID-19, although that's exactly what we're doing. Um, but one thing I did want to ask you, too, uh, Larry, is I know you have a family and friends back in Italy yeah. uh, and, and such. And, and obviously it has struck that part of the world uh, quite strongly. Uh, your thoughts on that in, in is all of your family doing well there? Yes, uh, thank you for asking. Yes, we've been in regular contact uh, with family in Italy. We have lots of cousins. Um, we are fortunate in, in this sense that the outbreak in Italy, the strongest uh, repercussions were felt in the north of the country. My family is from the center, and so away from where the major outbreaks were, but certainly not immune to, to what's been happening there and, and the very severe shutdown and lockdown um, of strategies, at least uh, uh, enforcements that they've had to undergo over the last uh, number of weeks. So my family, uh, they're doing well. <clears throat> it's a very small country. You know, Italy is just one-third the size of Ontario, mm-hmm. uh, and there are 60 million people in that country. And, um, and of course, uh, you know, this disease travels across continents, let alone in such a small landmass. Uh, but uh, they have had to adjust to the new reality of staying indoors, uh, and I mean indoors and being checked when they leave uh, and they'd better have their documentation and they better have a good reason as to why they're leaving their homes. Otherwise, the police uh, escort them back in. And um, and so that the, they they are they are um, very proud people. Uh, they're hopeful. Uh, there are all kinds of at least on social media uh, tributes to first responders and ordinary people singing from rooftops just to lift their spirits. Uh, but they're going through some turmoil. And of course, they've had lots of deaths and 
And they really were the poster child for what not to do um, in having your health system overwhelmed by this disease. And I think other countries, including ours, have taken lessons from that and have done whatever they could to, to make sure that, that doesn't, their experience isn't replicated here. And it's just so bizarre to see some of the tourist attractions, which, you know, we all know and love, just absolutely empty. And as we've talked before, I've been fortunate enough to go there on holiday and do the tour. And it is such a sociable place. It is such a place where they enjoy food and drink and and company. It must be so difficult for them at this point. Well, you know what? Um, You're right. We watched the Bocelli um, show. yeah, that was something. Uh, yeah, the, the, you know, where he, he was in the great church in Milan, the Duomo, um, and he was all alone along with the, the accompanist that was there. Um, and Italians, by their very nature, are very expressive people. They're touchy-feely. They kiss, they hug. Um, I mean, all of all of this, you know, the, 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 the nice stereotypes that we think of, of, uh, of uh, people from that part of the world and now they've had to learn that that just is not acceptable. And um, and it carries on, you know. I mean, I find myself um, here when, when we have to go do some grocery shopping because you've got to go grocery shopping. And I've lived my life in touch with people, both mm. my political life, my educational life. It's always been about people. And now I resent anybody that comes close to me and encroaches <laughs> on this two-meter rule. And boy, that is such a strange feeling. I find myself shaking my head at my own reaction when that happens because we're having to live with this new reality and the danger around us. Yeah, I remember asking a health official on Thursday, will we ever hug again? And it's it's frightening to think about. I'm sure we will one day, but it might be a while. It may be a while. It may be a while. All right, Larry, let's talk about the topic that isn't uh, centered around COVID-19, although maybe with scheduling and such, obviously it's going to affect uh, this like it has everything. Uh, Late last week, Transportation Task Force issued its recommendations. Your thoughts, where are we now? Well, so I was uh, was pleasantly surprised to read that headline in the paper um, when, when the news came out that the task force was recommending uh, higher order transit, uh, either LRT back on the table or bus rapid transit, um, and uh, and of course read the report that was printed um, uh, from the task force to the to the minister, and uh, and actually it was a it was a very good report, very thoughtful report. They had a an interesting process where they posed some questions that any project uh, would have to uh, address, um, and then they applied. Uh, both uh, provincial documents as well as local documents uh, to that uh, to that to those questions uh, that formulated the recommendations that they made. Uh, and although they're preliminary recommendations, um, because um, and the minister is now doing this, they said you know the, the ministry of transportation will want to do its due diligence on any of the recommendations, and I understand that that's happening now. They were thoughtful recommendations. They didn't seem to be politically politically tinged. I think the uh, task force itself uh, uh, is a blue ribbon task force. Uh, you know, former uh, transportation federal transportation minister Tony Valeri, um, who knows his way around government, uh, a journalist who seen who lives in the city um, and seems not to have had any axe to grind one way or the other. Um, someone from a local union. Uh, in the uh, government relations department, and of course, the city manager, and a uh, and a professor from uh, of transportation from McMaster. So individuals of the highest caliber, um, not tinged uh, by any political persuasion uh, in any way, other than maybe the city manager that responds to a, a political body um, uh, representing the city of Hamilton. But you know, she is a, a consummate professional. And so wouldn't uh, allow the politics of the day to uh, dictate, I'm sure, um, her contributions. So it was a very good report. And, and the fact that um, one of the things that they wanted the uh, city, uh, or at least the, the, problem, the provincial money to, to help in, is both the transportation, uh, sustainability, uh, job creation, 
uh, and and uh, and uh, um, environmental issues, sustainable environmental issues. And it seems that all of the documents that they looked at said that look, um, and and also shovel ready, um, you know, not documents uh, or at least not projects that would be identified that would need you know years and years and years. Uh, before they they uh, were implemented, but stuff that's ready to go now, and they really said, look, you're looking at a, a higher order transit, either uh, uh, LRT or BRT, and provincial money should go towards towards those projects. So I was very very impressed with that. Uh, now, um, you know, the province, and I don't think I'm exaggerating. And Scott, you and I happen to be uh, on air the day that the minister came down to pull yeah. the rug uh, from under our feet in terms of this project, uh, they botched it initially. I think it's fair to say, uh, and they would also, I understand even the premier wasn't happy with how things unfolded uh, when they came to town and, and decided to stop this project. But they have a chance now to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. By taking these um, recommendations seriously, uh, by engaging with the city, not in an adversarial way, um, uh, but in a collaborative way, and engaging the federal government as well. And I think I think some good can come out of this. Um, many, uh, obviously, all of this was in motion, or lack thereof, prior to COVID-19. Now, obviously, governments of all levels are injecting all kinds of cash uh, into the system, trying to keep the economy afloat. Uh, way back when... Uh, the premier said, uh, we can't afford this. Hamilton can't afford this. Some may say now, now we really can't afford it because the governments are spending all of this money. Or is it the opposite, Larry, where this is exactly the sort of building project, the infrastructure injection that we need uh, now that we're trying to kickstart the economy and get things going post-COVID-19? Well, in, and in fact, in fact, um, I, I think it's the latter of the two. Um, yes, they, you know, all, all governments have been spending a lot of money. And my goodness, at some point, we're going to have to turn our, our national and uh, provincial and local attention to that as well. Um, but now is not that time. Now that the economy's in shambles, uh, we're still dealing with this crisis um, and, and, and also trying to to, to deal with the immediate, but also look at the future. In fact, I think the minister herself has indicated that uh, COVID and stimulus uh, will be a factor in deciding um, how to move forward. And that's one of the reasons why shovel-ready uh, projects such as this is. Remember, uh, the underground service and work um, has um, ha- it needs to be done, and, and uh, they know what work to be done. Uh, 65% land acquisition has been completed for the LRT. So if you combine the private sector, the province, the municipal government, and the federal government, it'll be a huge boost for the city in creating jobs, uh, as well as dealing with all the other reasons that initiated a discussion around high-order transit. So is LRT more attractive now, Larry, than it was before COVID-19? So, it, you know, it, it, it certainly, um, um, it's certainly, you know, COVID has, has, you know, all the problems we had before COVID disappeared. They didn't seem to matter a whole bunch once we dealt with this national and global health issue. And it put everything in perspective as to really what's important. And what's important is, is our personal health our community health, our provincial and national health, and I would say our global health uh, as well, because we are, as this disease has proven, we are so interconnected that something that happens, you know, thousands of miles away in China can within hours impact our, our, our own well-being here or vice versa for that matter. Uh, and so, um, you know, the antagonism that existed uh, prior to uh, COVID on this project, the polarization, let me put it this way, that existed um, on, on this issue prior, prior to COVID. If you were to ask people, they'd probably still fall on one side or the other. And remember, we were on, on, uh, on, on a very polarized sort of uh, uh, scale um, with this project. But I think COVID 
and the need for stimulus and the need to address transportation issues in a sustainable way gives it a new context. And so my guess is that um, uh, that um, most people would say, you know, let's find something that we can all agree to and, and move forward. And if we need to compromise our own uh, beliefs that we had prior to, to COVID, let's look at things with a, a fresh perspective and do something that's good for the community. And remember, um, uh, you know, the report itself says either LRT or bus rapid transit, you know, dedicated buses and so on, which would to some extent provide the same um, the same restrictions that a, a dedicated LRT line would for our streets and all of the concerns around traffic and so on. Uh, but a decision has to be, hasn't been made as to which of those two. Um, but I, my, my hope anyway would be that the community would rally around this now. Uh, so as you mentioned, and, and how odd is it, and, and we talked about this uh, weeks ago, that this may come full circle and we may still see an LRT, which would just be mind-boggling uh, to think about uh, how this journey all started. But uh, LRT, obviously the option, some are saying a shorter version of, and or complemented with uh, BRT, and then I think the third option was more capacity on go. So at the end of the day, we're kind of back to where we started. So could you see a shorter version of the LRT, which, you know, we had that argument before and that, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, it's a train to nowhere. Should we not just do with the original, uh, the original uh, plan? But if you're the government of Ontario, and we've certainly seen Doug Ford change his tune in the last few weeks, um, what do you do with this? Because basically it's LRT. Yes, I think I think uh, many uh, many people have become Doug Ford fans uh, because of the way that uh, who weren't before uh, because of the way that he's handling uh, this particular crisis, uh, and of course the government has become very very uh, attuned to providing whatever support to communities communities need. Uh, the mantra is no longer you know the bottom line; it's what do we need to do to get ourselves out of this mess. I would hope that there would be some carryover. Um, uh, of this philosophy, you know, this this is a party that that has its own roots and its own fiscal beliefs, and and uh, they won an election, and God bless them, um, uh, God bless our system for allowing governments of different stripes to implement what they think is best for the citizens of their province or communities. But I'm hoping that they will learn that 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 being a little more generous and uh, less doctrinaire about things. Uh, is probably in everybody's interest. And, and so if you're going to do a, a higher-order transit, especially with the LRT, starting at the traffic circle and going to MAC makes absolutely no sense. You at least got to cross the city uh, into, um, you know, Stony Creek or the edge of Stony Creek at, at, uh, at Eastgate, uh, which, which was one of the plans. Uh, it's, it's not a question of, of does it make sense. It's a question of the financing for it. And this government has learned that to do the right thing, sometimes you got to spend money. And hopefully, with the help of private sector, with the help of uh, of uh, the the federal government, they'll find their way to doing exactly that. And let me also say, and this is obviously something that uh, my former colleagues on council and uh, and and the current councillors who are there now would, may not want to hear. But, you know, the city has wanted this project, but they haven't wanted to spend a penny on this project. Well, maybe it's time yeah. for the city to look itself in the face as well and say, look, if we really want it, we need to be at the table as full partners, not just as beneficiaries. That's a very valid point, Larry. So what happens now? What happens to this report? Well, um, you know, right now we're in the, in the midst of this crisis. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, and people are working from home and, you know, it's not the regular uh, order of business that's happening right now. And and I think Canadians uh, um, right across the country, but certainly people in Ontario and locally want the government to focus on uh, on getting us through this crisis, this health crisis. Uh, but, of course, that doesn't mean that everything has to stop. The minister herself has indicated that there's going to be some due diligence done on the report by Metrolinx. The report actually asks for that as well, uh, that due diligence be done. And I'm hoping that as we speak, they're doing that, uh, both the 
the uh, the uh, Metrolinks uh, staff as well as the uh, Ministry of uh, Transportation uh, provincially, uh, and uh, they will formulate a, a path forward that's positive. One thing I can I can probably say for sure, um, only because this has been hyped so much, that this is not a report that's going to sit on somebody's shelf in the Ministry of Transportation. I think uh, uh, because of everything that's happened and also the need for some economic stimulus that we've talked about, and this is perhaps a good marriage of of those two, uh, there's going to be action. Uh, What that action uh, will be remains to be seen, but I I don't think it's going to just gather dust, this report. uh, I don't think we'll just gather dust uh, in Toronto. You know, you bring up a very valid point that uh, that Hamilton, during the early parts of, of the this discussion, it was all about getting it for free, uh, that and nobody in the city was going to have to pay every, anything. And I remember talking to officials in, in other places like Kitchener-Waterloo, for example, who had to pay a third along with the province and, and the feds and such. And it just seemed very odd that there was still bickering going on when we didn't even have anything vested in this from, from a financial standpoint. Now, of course, the city always has something invested in it. Of course, course. it all ends up costing us all in the end. But as you said, to go and ask for such a big prize without really contributing anything financially almost seems silly in retrospect now. Uh, That being said, uh, Catherine McKenna had stepped up saying the feds might offer um, uh, money to this. So could we see this open up where it went from being a free gift to something where uh, we could see uh, Hamilton contribute something to it, considering what has happened? We could see the feds contribute, contribute something and even the private sector jump in there. Well, and, and that's and that's my point. So, you know, again, uh, to do the right thing, to do a, to do the proper job, um, it, it would would probably not be a question of, of will, uh, but a question of fiscal realities. And uh, and so, if I were involved, I'd certainly want to gather um, um, people around the table or, or or join the table if others are organizing it. Uh, with an open mind as to what do we need to do, what will it mean for us uh, as a community to do the right job and not just half the job. Um, and yes, I mean, everybody uh, remembers the promise that was made uh, by uh, Premier Wynne at the time. I was at university when she made the announcement that it was all going to be funded. Um, and, uh, and of course, many years have elapsed. There's a new government in place now, different philosophies. But we're going to be in a different place once this COVID uh, issue is over. Uh, we're going to have to stimulate the economy as well as build the city. And here's a project that's shovel-ready, whichever way it goes, whether it's LRT or, or BRT, shovel-ready. Um, a project is dying for, um, uh, you know, the, the, the impetus and the dollars to, to, to implement it. You don't have to, you don't have to beat the bush any longer to, to find something to do. You've got it. And, uh, and I'm hoping that everybody will participate with an open mind. Okay, let's just say, Larry, this is put back on the table. After everything we've been through, it's put back on the table. As you mentioned, uh, go back to the early days of this discussion, and even though it was approved, it's still like we were still debating it, hoping we would lose it in some way. Uh, It was thought that half the city wanted it, the other half didn't want it. It was a very contentious issue, which is why I think the Premier, uh, or or rather uh, Caroline Mulroney, rolled into town and, and sold this as a press conference, and instead got got run out on the rails uh no pun intended so if this does get put back on the table are we going to watch hamilton shoot itself in the foot a second time with all of this are we going to see the same debate going on from city council even after this is approved a second time will we go through all that or will we just be happy to receive it and move on well so who knows i mean that's you know, trying to read the tea leaves, and and we we know where the divisions are, we know where the fault lines are, and a new one just opened up, according to the you know newspaper, in that the uh, the local uh, transit union uh, that had been supportive now, isn't supportive of LRT, but they are supportive only of VRT because uh, Metrolinx was going to uh, contract out uh, some of the work um, on on an LRT. 
And of course, the union wants to preserve employment for its local people. So I can understand that. So the fault lines are there. That's my point. We know which councillors had which positions. Uh, some of them have changed their position or had changed their uh, position when uh, uh, when uh, the new government was elected as well. Uh, so it remains to be seen whether uh, learning from this crisis and the need to collaborate, if anything that this crisis has, has taught us is that collaboration is better than uh, than being oppositional. Uh, you know, and you and you look at what's happening federally, in spite of the various parties and, and a minority government, by and large, they are collaborating on the need to get this country through this crisis. Similarly, provincially, although Mr. Ford has a majority, the opposition leaders are being supportive, both in process and in substance, of mm-hmm. some of the plans that are being put forward. I'm hoping that we will learn as a municipal government, uh, once this crisis is over, that we've got to do the business a little more collaboratively. And hopefully some of those fault lines will be smoothed over. And in fact, um, part of the due diligence that the minister, uh, the minister's office might want to do is, is to try to bring these sides together. That would be a great role, quite frankly, for the minister to assume. Bring these sides together. Uh, and uh, and march forward with a um, uh, as unified a front as possible. Well said. Who knows? We might end up with a more united world than divisive world when uh, this is all over. Larry Deani has been with us, former mayor of city of Hamilton. Uh, LRT back on the table again. We'll see what happens. Larry, again, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated, and stay well with you and your family. And you as well, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.